Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We continue the story of David as a fugitive. And really this three-chapter narrative, where chapters 24, 25, and 26 really belong very closely together, uh, not only because of uh, the the thematic material that that seems very similar, but also because there's just a succession of events that are all very related to one another and and build off of one another. And David learns uh, some important lessons, I think, through this series of events. And so we saw in chapter 24, uh, David and his... Uh, 600 men were hiding out in a cave, and Saul and his army are on the pers- on, or in pursuit, and they stop at a cave for Saul to uh, relieve himself, and happens to be the cave where David and his men are hanging out. And so David has this great opportunity, it seems, uh, to take Saul out and seize the kingdom for himself. And he, it seems like he begins to move in that direction. He gets close to him, cuts off a corner of his robe, and then he's pricked in his conscience. He says, what am I doing? I cannot strike the Lord's anointed. And so we saw in that chapter his restraint, and he entrusted himself to God uh, and his timing. And he let Saul know, I could have killed you, and I didn't. So Saul and his men make their way back back home or back to wherever they went. Uh, And then in chapter 25, we saw David acting a bit more, um, how shall we say, impetuously. Uh, He was insulted by a rich fool named Nabal, uh, he had asked him for some supplies, and Nabal refused, and so David said, all right, we're going to go get him, and he rounded up all his men and told them to strap on their swords, and he was about to go and, uh, and destroy Nabal and his household when he was interrupted by Nabal's wife, Abigail, who uh, played courageously and wisely for David to, uh, to relent, to change his plan, to humble himself, soften his heart, and God worked in David through that. And he did, in fact, uh, relent in his plan. Uh, and now we find in, verse, in chapter 26, David's going to have another very similar opportunity to what happened in chapter 24, where Saul is going to be at his mercy once again. So uh, we'll just start walking through this story, and, uh, and we'll pause and make observations as we go. So the first uh, couple of verses, look there, beginning verse 1. Then Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road, on the east of Jeshimon. Now, we don't necessarily need to know everything about all those little places. We're in this, kind of, this country region uh, where David has been kind of hanging out and hiding um, for the last stretch of time. Once again, the Ziphites find themselves no friend of David. Uh, back in chapter 23, uh, they had done the same thing and alerted Saul, hey, we found David. We think David is hanging out in these particular, this particular area, and so Saul had gone with his men to find him. Now, once again, they become aware of David's whereabouts, and they come and let Saul know. What's a little bit different and kind of interesting to the story here is that they went to Saul at Gebeah, which means Saul is back home. So after the encounter between David and Saul in chapter 24, Saul apparently went all the way back home. 
where his uh, throne was, where the kingdom uh, was situated. Uh, And so he, at least for the time being, is not pursuing David. So he had, at least for this season, sort of relented from his uh, plan to track down and kill David. And so he's at home when the Ziphites come to him and say, hey, we found David again. And just that little, that information, that knowledge of where David is provides a spark to Saul's envy and bitterness and selfishness. And once again, he's in hot pursuit. And so he takes his 3,000 soldiers, which again, might be a little bit overkill for David and his 600 guys. But here he comes now to track down David. Let's see what happens next. Look at verse 3. Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, where, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. Okay, so he's off the road out in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. We'll pause there. So David confirms Saul's location, spots Saul and his army sleeping, and enlists his nephew Abishai. It says the Joab and Abishai were the sons of Zeruiah, which is David's sister. So Abishai is his nephew. He says, who wants to come along? And Abishai says, I'll go with you. And so they're going down to the camp to get a closer look. Actually, they're going down all the way into the camp to Saul. That is, what, that is the invitation that David makes to Abishai, which sounds a bit risky. Uh, maybe that's why uh, Joab, the, the brother of Abishai, wasn't so quick to volunteer to come along. That sounds like a suicide mission. I think I'll leave you to it. And so David and Abishai head down to the camp where Saul and his men are sleeping. So here's the situation. Saul is lying in the middle of this encampment of 3,000 soldiers. He's sleeping. He's got his general Abner, who's also his uncle, by the way. We've met him earlier in the book. And 3,000 soldiers are all around him. In sleeping bags or bedrolls or whatever, lying on the ground asleep. So right in the middle of this 3,000 men is Saul and Abner lying there. Saul's famous spear, which is usually clutched in his hand or hurling towards David's head, one or the other, is 
uh, during his waking hours, is resting right beside him, thrust into the ground right near his head, along with a water jug that we hear about. So he's got the spear for his uh, protection, for his uh, weapon, and he's got the water for his own refreshment. So those, those, these two personal belongings of Saul that are mentioned here that are right beside Saul. And all of them are asleep. Saul's asleep. Abner, who's the general of the army and thus the head of the kind of bodyguard here, the watchman for Saul, they're all asleep. All 3,000 soldiers are sleeping. That's a little unusual. You would expect that in a situation like this that at least somebody, if not several somebodies, would be awake and watching to protect Saul and to protect the army and to alert them to anybody who might try to sneak in to the camp. So Abishai remembers David's sermon in the cave, right back in chapter 24, when all of his men were like, let's go get Saul. David had to stop them from killing Saul. Um, And so uh, Abishai remembers that. And so he doesn't say, David, go get him. He says, let me do it, right? You don't even have to put your hand out against him. Let me go. I'll get the spear. It's only going to take me one time, I promise you, right? I'm going to pin him to the ground with his own spear. And David Again, he is resolute, maybe even more so this time around, in his conviction to honor Yahweh's king, even as unhonorable as Saul is, as a person. And I think here there's some important stuff for us to see. In David's refusal to allow Abishai to spear Saul in his sleep, there's two clear concerns that show up. David reveals two things that he's that lead him to or inform his refusal to take action against Saul. The first concern is righteousness. The first of his concerns is righteousness. To take Saul's life will incur blood guilt and would not be a strike only against Saul, but also against Yahweh himself, since he has anointed him as king. As he said, who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David has an obvious opportunity to end his extended stay in hills and caves and to immediately become the king of Israel. So why doesn't he do it? Well, in a word, he wanted to do the right thing. It comes down to righteousness. The Puritan Matthew Henry says of David here, the thing he feared was guilt and his concern respected his innocence more than his safety. Let me ask you, How often is this true of you? How often are you more concerned about righteousness than ease, comfort, or convenience? To quote Henry one more time, he says, Thus bravely does he prefer his conscience to his interest and trusts God with the issue. Well, may we be so concerned with righteousness and the honor of God that we make inconvenient, even painful choices for the sake of conscience and for doing the right thing. That's what it looks like to honor God and to live under his authority. So David is first concerned about righteousness. But his second concern, or the second reason that he's, that he's resolute in not striking Saul down is providence providence basically 
David is convinced by this time that God will take out Saul in his own time and his own way. Right? I don't need to go and end Saul because God will take care of it when he's ready to do it and in the manner he intends. And he actually identifies here three possibilities for how Saul might meet his end that's been appointed to him by Yahweh. Number one, the Lord will strike him down directly. Right? Maybe Yahweh will strike him down, just kill him. Number two, his day will come. That is, he will die of some natural cause, probably in old age, right? So just somewhere along the way, Saul will get sick and die. Or he'll go down into battle and get struck down on the battlefield. So David says it could be God striking him down. It could be just his day comes and he dies naturally. It could be he's in one of these battles against the Philistines or the Amalekites or something and he gets killed, right? I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's God's to decide. That's what David essentially is saying. And this is a lesson, perhaps, that David learned in chapter 25. In chapter 25, of course, as Nabal insulted him, David's hot-headed response was, rally his men, strap on his swords, and lead this rip-roaring rampage of revenge on Nabal and his whole household. But when Abigail wisely and winsomely urges patience and mercy on David's part, he softens his heart, he gives up his pursuit of vengeance, and what happened next? God killed Nabal. God just struck him down. When Abigail told him about what had happened with David, it says his heart became like a stone, and then 10 days later he died. So God is essentially teaching David there, just rest easy and leave it to me vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, right? So now David's a bit more keen to realize God doesn't need me in order to accomplish his purposes. It's true that Saul needs to get out of the way before David can receive the promised kingdom, but it's better to trust in God's providential time and manner than to force it by his own hand. So David has learned and teaches us a valuable lesson. If we'll focus our hearts on honoring God and doing the right thing and entrust our circumstances and our lives to his providential care, the Lord will take care of us and accomplish his purposes. Sounds a little bit like Jesus in Matthew 6, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So David, out of concern for righteousness and a recognition of God's providence, decides this is not for me to decide. This is not mine to handle. And he urges again Abishai to, uh, to not go and strike down Saul. So rather than killing Saul, he sends Abishai down into the midst of Saul's camp in the middle of 3,000 armed soldiers sleeping to swipe Saul's spear and water jug. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Look at verse 12. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. We'll pause right there. It says here, David took the spear, but we assume it's 
actually Abishai who went on this perilous mission to retrieve them. David gets the credit because it was on his order. And if you imagine yourself trying to tiptoe through rows of sleeping warriors making your way toward the center of the camp and the king himself, you might gain a healthy respect for the noise made by crunching leaves and sticks or for the potential of tripping over an arm or a leg and waking up the entire camp and finding yourself right there in the middle of all of these armed warriors. And those fears would be reasonable indeed, but for one detail the author gives us in verse 12. Did you notice it? No man knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Why? Because a deep sleep from Yahweh had fallen upon them. Now, he probably didn't know it, but Abishai could have gone skipping and whistling through the camp with the same result. When God puts you to sleep, asleep you shall be until he's ready for you to wake up. So God gives them a bit of uh, supernatural help so that perhaps David and Abishai's arguing over what to do with the spear and Abishai's actual creeping through the camp doesn't wake anybody up. Might actually explain why they're asleep in the first place because otherwise you'd expect watchmen to be up and watching and aware. Maybe you can try that excuse if you're late for work this week. Well, the Lord put me into a deep sleep and I, I couldn't wake up in time. Uh, anyway, good luck with that. At any rate, so David now has the spear and water jug from Saul's side. So Abishai made it there, got the spear, got the water jug, made it all the way back out of the camp to David. And they quickly put distance between themselves and Saul's army. And once they're at a safe distance on the other side of a canyon from where the army slumbers, David will address Saul and his men. Look at verse 14. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, Yahweh's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Apparently the divine sleeping aid has worn off because everyone wakes up as soon as David starts calling to them, even from across a canyon. So arguing right by the camp, walking through the camp, taking the spear by Saul's head, they're sleeping through that. But now that they're on a canyon on the other side, I mean a hill on the other side of this canyon and going, hey Abner, suddenly they're all awake, right? So God has uh, clearly uh, intervened here and now he's released this uh, sleep and they're beginning to stir and hear the the troubling voice of one saying what were you thinking look at where the spear and the water jug that were by your king's head have ended up interestingly the first person david addresses isn't saul but abner saul's uncle the general of his army and the first thing he does is to point out Abner's failure to carry out his duty. Indeed, a failure punishable by death under law. If you are the watchman of the king and you fall asleep and don't protect him, guess whose neck that is? He's not exaggerating when he says you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord. That's true. He holds out the spear of Saul as an indictment 
to him. And by extension to all Saul's men, as if to say, if you had done your job and been on watch for the sake of your king, we could not have snuck into your camp and taken this spear from you. I want to return to that a little bit later, so bookmark it in your mind, uh, but, and let's continue the story. We'll come back to the spear and this indictment on uh, Abner and his men. Look at verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, O Lord, O King. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is Yahweh who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before Yahweh, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of Yahweh, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of Yahweh. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." Well, David didn't identify himself before launching into his criticism of Abner and his soldiers, but Saul recognizes his voice. Is this your voice, my son David? Notice that term of endearment here, as opposed to his contemptuous reference to him a few chapters earlier as this son of Jesse, right? Now he's my son David. David begins now to question Saul. Why are you trying to kill me? What evil have I done? And I don't think David is asking that rhetorically. I don't think he's just going, what's your problem? I haven't done anything. I think he is actually, honestly, humbly asking to know whether he is guilty of sin against the king, which we've seen is a chief concern in his heart in these recent episodes, right? Far be it from me that I would put my hand against the Lord's anointed. He is concerned for righteousness. And so I think when he asks Saul, what have I done? What evil is there in me that you are seeking to kill me? I think he really honestly wants to know. And he wants to repent and confess if there is something. And so he actually says, if it's, if it's me, if it's something in me, a sin in me that has stirred you up, and Yah he actually says, Yahweh has stirred you up to, to, to kill me because of guilt in me, please let me know so that I can make atonement for it, right? So I can make an offering to Yahweh for my sin. I think he truly wants to know. And he, he grants so, uh, kind of two possibilities here uh, in his, his appeal. He grants two possibilities about Saul's determination to kill him. In other words, why are you trying to kill me? Number one is that he has sinned against Saul in some way, as we just saw, and Yahweh has stirred up Saul to enact justice. And number two is that evil men have provoked Saul unjustly. To pursue David. So perhaps Saul has some advisors who are saying, David is out for your kingdom, you need to strike him down, right? So maybe Saul is listening to uh, bad counsel uh, to, to convince him of David's intentions. He's too kind to say what to us is fairly obvious. It is actually Saul's own twisted soul and obsessive envy that have energized this relentless pursuit. By leaving out the most plausible of the possibilities, perhaps David hopes to tweak Saul's conscience into admitting the truth 
The fault is not in David or in others, but in myself. Saul has an opportunity here to humble himself and to admit that truth. Despite the difficulties of living in caves and camps and being in constant flight from the law, do you notice what grieves David's heart the most about his exile in the wilderness? Did you catch it in this little appeal to Saul? He says, they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of Yahweh, saying, go serve other gods. And then again down in verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of Yahweh. David's sorrow is driven by the fact that he has been cast out of the land of God's covenant dwelling. The place and people and process of worship and sacrifice. His heart is consumed with the worship of God. And the men who he suggests are provoking Saul against him are essentially saying to David, you have no right to God's people and to God's place. You can't participate in the sacrifices and offerings that comprise the worship of Yahweh. You may as well live in some pagan country and worship pagan idols. That is how David is receiving this forced exile. You've cast me out from the presence of God and his people in the land of his dwelling. Now, of course, we know that God doesn't literally live in only one place. David is not in any literal sense away from the presence of God. But there is this covenant connection of the people of Israel and the land of Canaan and the the worship of God. And as long as he's in exile, in caves and in the wilderness, he is cut off, as it were, from the worship of God with his people. That is what burdens David so much about this exile. And so he he pours out his heart to Saul here, more so than he did in chapter 24. Back in the cave, he he made it plain that his intentions were not to harm Saul and that he was trusting God with the timing of the kingdom. But here he is just pouring out his heart, pleading with him to relent. And not because he's so tired of running or because he really wants to have a good relationship with Saul, but because he desperately wants to be among the people of God, in the land of God's covenant presence, in the service and worship of God. Brothers and sisters, does your heart long for the worship of God? Do you find in yourself a growing desire for God's people and for God's word? If for some reason you were forced to live in exile uh, or on some distant island or whatever, living in hiding for some time, among the things you would miss the most about your normal rhythms and life and the things you would find yourself craving and longing for, would the gathering of Christians on the Lord's day to worship him and receive his word be near the top of your list? It's a gut check question for us. Do we long for God and his worship and his people in this way? May the Lord cultivate in us hearts that crave to worship him in the presence of the saints, as David demonstrates for us here. Well, how does Saul respond to David pouring out his heart? Look in verse 21. Then Saul said, 
I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. The words sound like confession. I have sinned. They sound like repentance. Return, for I will do you no more harm. It's the right response. We can't know Saul's heart here, whether there is true change here, because real repentance is more than words. It's more than apologies. It takes time to show itself in the fruit of a transformed life. Repentance means change. And we can't observe change in Saul just by hearing him say the right things. So we need to be careful in our own repentance, our own confession that we offer others when we've sinned. We need to be careful to allow time for, to, for others to see the fruit of repentance, the fruit of transformation in our own lives. And we need to apply that same principle and standard to others in our lives. I'm sorry is not the same as repentance. It is a necessary part of repentance, but it's not enough. An abusive husband might say to his wife, I'm sorry, but that doesn't mean you go live with him again, right? There's change that's needed before we, we believe that repentance has really taken place. Given Saul's track record, including words of reconciliation in chapter 24, followed by this renewed hunt for David in chapter 26, David is not too keen to trust him. He doesn't call this bluff or say, I don't believe you that you're sorry, but he doesn't return. Look at verse 22. David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. So he basically says, I'm not coming back. Right? Saul's saying, return, come back home. I won't try to harm you anymore. David says, I'm not coming back. If you want your spear back, send someone over here to get it. And then he entrusts himself not to Saul, but to God. When he says, as your life has been precious in my sight today, may my life be precious in the sight of Yahweh. You'd expect him to say, since I regarded your life as precious, you should also regard my life as precious, right? Since I spared you, you should spare me. But that's not what he says. He says, since I've regarded you, the preciousness of your life in righteousness and have not struck you down, may Yahweh regard my life as precious and deliver me from troubles. And so rightly, wisely, David entrusts himself and his future and his reputation and his protection and his very life to God and not to men. May we learn to seek the approval of God rather than the approval of men. Such a hard lesson for us to learn. It is so natural for us to want approval from others, to want blessing from others, to want respect from others. But ultimately, that's not what matters for the Christian. 
we live under the eye of God, under the authority of his word, and we ought to seek his favor, his approval, his blessing. And then the story comes to a conclusion here with Saul offering one more word of affirmation, similar to chapter 24, if not as robust. He says, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And then they part from one another and Saul goes back home. Saul returned to his place, it says in verse 25. Let me make one overarching observation about David's behavior and then I want to conclude by pointing your attention one more time to the spear, to Saul's spear and the testimony that it bears. So observing David in chapters 24 and 25 and 26, here I think is, is what we see. Maybe a, a growth in David, a, a, a conviction that grows in David's heart. When David's heart treasures the honor of God above all else, he acts nobly, courageously. And actually sort of foreshadows or pictures Christ for us who will be zealous for the glory of God. But when he has his own honor and self-interest in mind, like he did when Nabal insulted him, he acts impetuously and foolishly and looks nothing like Christ to us. Our choices and our words will be right and godly only when we keep God's glory in our hearts and minds above our own comfort, reputation, or pleasure. This was an important lesson for David to learn before he ascends the throne in Israel. He should have this in his mind when the time does come that the throne is given to him. I need to seek the honor of God above everything else, not my own power, my own preservation, my own kingdom. It's an important lesson for us to learn as we follow King Jesus today. So I want to point your attention back to the spear as we wrap up. I think the spear shows us something really poignant and powerful about the gospel. Back when Abishai had gone into the camp and retrieved the spear of Saul, which is, which is kind of a symbol of his royalty, if you will. Kind of, he's always with it. Uh, it it's the, the, his chief weapon. It's usually in his hand. So it's kind of a symbol of his kingly authority, right? And so when Abishai takes from him this royal spear, and then David calls out to the men about this spear, it bears witness. The spear itself sort of bears witness to two realities, two concurrent realities, things that are true at the same time. Number one, it bears witness to judgment upon the negligent guards, right? I, I kind of made that point earlier. That David was able to capture the spear is an indictment on Saul's guards for failing to keep watch. Indeed, it was a crime punishable by death. And so the stolen spear is a word of judgment on these sinful men. And at the same time, the spear held out in front of Saul is a symbol of mercy upon the murderous king. That David did not enact vigilante justice and vindicate himself, instead sparing the life 
of the unworthy Saul is unmistakably an act of patient mercy. So Saul's spear in the hand of David is at once a symbol of judgment upon sin and mercy toward sinners. A thousand years later, on a hill outside Jerusalem, would stand another weapon carved from wood that would announce the same realities, but with infinitely greater scope and infinitely higher cost. The cross of Calvary, where Jesus Christ was crucified, cries out for all the world to hear these two realities, the judgment of God upon sin and the mercy of God upon sinners who will cast themselves upon Jesus in faith. The cross of Christ is a statement to all the world about the seriousness and the depth of sin and our brokenness and our guilt before God that we stand condemned in our sin. And at the same time, it speaks a word of mercy, a word of forgiveness to say, if you will look upon the Christ of Calvary who hangs on this cross for your sins, you will be forgiven. You will be welcomed in to God's family. You will be redeemed. That's the hope of the gospel. And you see it right there in David holding a spear in front of Saul. It's judgment on sin and it's mercy upon sinners. Praise God for his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Let me pray.